You are now listening to the people of digital marketing with your host, me, Kenny Soto. This podcast is your source for marketing strategies, tactics, and most importantly, career advice from the best digital marketers in the world. From B2B to B2C, startups to Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between, I interview experts in marketing so that we can grow to become better marketers together. If you're a marketer who wants a leg up in this space, well, guess what? You're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Howdy, fellow marketers, and welcome to another episode of the People of Digital Marketing. Today's guest is Kathleen Booth. Kathleen is the VP of Marketing at Clean.io, the market leader in digital engagement security solutions used by businesses looking to optimize their revenue and buyer experience by taking back control over third-party code on their websites. Prior to joining Clean.io, she spent 13 years in the digital marketing agency world, first as owner and CEO of Quantane Marketing and then as VP of Marketing at Impact. Kathleen is the host of the long-running Inbound Success podcast and was named by Top Rank as one of the 50 top B2B marketing influencers of 2019. In this podcast episode, we talk about cybersecurity and why it's important for marketers to know how to protect their company, their customers, and their team. I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. Now let's tune in. Hi, Kathleen. How are you? I'm great, Kenny. Thanks for having me on the show. So as always, I like to start off these podcast episodes by asking each guest the same question just so the listeners can get more context about who you are as a marketer and as a professional. So my first question for you is what got you into the world of digital marketing? Well, I actually, it was funny. I studied um, political science and when I was in school and I, I had done my undergraduate degree in that I was actually in the process of doing a master's in international politics at George Washington university. And about halfway through that, the university offered existing graduate students, the opportunity to apply for and do a second degree uh, without having to take all the entrance exams and and with the ability to kind of double count some of the credits. And so at the time I was like, boy, I'm doing another degree that doesn't seem like it's going to get me a job. And so I decided to do an MBA to make myself a little bit more marketable and did that in parallel with my master's. And I I just fell in love with marketing and um, I didn't really use it for the first probably seven to 10 years of my career, because I had these, these dual degrees, one in international politics and one in marketing, but there came a point in my career. I I was working on international development uh, where I recognized that a lot of the projects that we were working on were getting derailed because of poor communication. And that actually drew me back into marketing. And I started working on how do you improve outcomes by through better strategic communications earlier in the process. And, and eventually, and this is sort of a long story, but I'll making it short, hopefully, eventually what happened was there was a lot of international travel required for that job. And when I met my husband and decided to have kids, I had to rethink my entire career because I couldn't travel all over the world. And so we actually decided to open a marketing agency because he had some background in that I had a degree in it and had been doing some work related to it. And and it was a great way for me to build a a different sort of a career that would allow me uh, more control over my travel schedule and my life and my ability to be with my family. 
I believe I've asked this before with other guests, but I would love your own unique perspective. Do you believe that all marketers should get an MBA? What would be the pros and cons of doing so? That's such an interesting question. And I mean, obviously I chose to do it, but I think the world has changed a lot. And if I were doing it over today, my own personal choice is that I probably wouldn't get an MBA. I would, you know, maybe market, maybe major in marketing, but there are a lot of great marketers who don't have marketing majors. Um, For example, a lot of great marketers have psychology backgrounds because they understand uh, what makes people motivated to take action, make decisions, or many of them come from creative writing backgrounds. Many of them are political scientists like me, oddly enough. So I, I don't think it's so much about having an MBA. Um, I think it's about having a degree that is going to help you with the fundamental skills needed to be a great marketer. I mentioned psychology as one, or, you know, marketing certainly as an undergrad would be another. And then and then getting your start and getting experience. Um, I just don't see, unless you want to work in big corporate marketing, and for some people that might be the right path. Like if you wanted to go in and work at MasterCard and be a part of their management development program and eventually get into their marketing department, an MBA might be helpful there. But for most other companies, an MBA is not the price of admission. It's more experience. It's more the raw skills you have, your ability to write, your ability to think, your curiosity, and your problem-solving skills that will get you a job. I did some research on your professional background and saw that you were a part of an advisory board. What are the benefits to your career when it comes to joining an advisory board, is it also something that you would recommend marketers do, or is it something that's more unique to each individual? Yeah, I mean, it's something I'm passionate about because I did own a digital marketing agency for 11 years, and and I have that entrepreneurial streak in me where I no longer own my own business, but I, you know, I owned that agency. I had another startup at that time. I worked with so many entrepreneurs as my clients. And I love that stage of business where you're helping a company grow and the impact that can have on people. So it's something I'm passionate about. I do also think that there's a lot to be gained from serving in an advisory capacity. Um, it gives you, it, it does give you an opportunity and a perspective into how other businesses run and make decisions and the market dynamics, and also what's working and what's not from a marketing standpoint. And that was something when I had my agency that I think really helped me learn a lot and learn quickly is that I was working with companies across, you know, tens of different industries. I'm hesitant to say hundreds because I've never really actually counted, but, you know, it was everything from SaaS to landscaping, to dentists, to cybersecurity. And, I always felt, at least for me, like that cross-pollination was really powerful in terms of giving me the ability to think differently and to affect different outcomes for the businesses that I'm marketing for. And I think you can get the same thing out of serving in an advisory capacity. But for me, more so than anything, it's a way of giving back. Got it. Now, I'd love to start diving into your area of expertise. But before we do so, Could you describe to the listeners what you currently do for your job? 
Sure. So I am the chief marketing officer at clean.io, which is a SaaS, B2B SaaS company. We sell uh, solutions that help brands protect their revenue, their user experience, and, and their brand, really, by controlling the third-party code that executes on their website. And it's my job to pretty much do a little bit of everything in marketing because we are still a startup. We're, we're still a small company. So it's everything from being the, the evangelist for the brand and telling our brand story to uh, developing our go-to-market strategies and and our lead generation plans, defining what the brand stands for, and and working with the team to execute all of those things. So uh, it's fun. It's fast-paced. It's a lot sometimes, but I do love it. Thanks to this podcast, and I think it was the second guest that I had, I learned about the differences between first, second, and third-party data, but it was fairly new for me as a concept. For the listeners who are joining in for the first time on the podcast, could you describe the differences between first, second, and third-party data, and how does it actually affect them as marketers? Boy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give a great definition. I would say that the way I think of it is there's first-party data, and to me, there's everything else. And the reason I say that is that my kind of ethos as a marketer has always been first and foremost, to develop an audience that I own. And ownership is a weird word to use, but um, what I mean by that is as marketers, we have a lot of choices with how we reach the people that we're trying to, to touch with our marketing. And some of those channels include you know, things that we have a lot of control over, like our website, which I would say we own, um, our email list, which we own. And then there's other channels like pay-per-click marketing and social media where we don't own the channel and therefore uh, the relationship with the audience. And, and then there's also opportunities through retargeting and other tools like that, that are even uh, kind of less directly connected. And so um, for me, the most important thing, the thing that future-proofs your business and your your career, your job as a marketer is developing an audience that you own, which is your first-party data. And so that is getting people to come to your website and having a system in place to understand who those people are and the actions they're taking. That is building an email list so that you own the data on your audience and can communicate with them directly, regardless of what other platform changes happen. That is building a community. Uh, And that community, obviously your choice of where your community lives tracks right back to what I said earlier about how much you own it. You know, if you build it on Facebook as a Facebook group, you, 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 partially own it, but you're still subject to Facebook's whim. If you build it in Slack, you have a lot more control that, you know, you could create a portal on your website, which is even something more within your control. There are pros and cons of all of those, but I think the theme that that underlies all of this and that I would really want to focus my answer on has to do with thinking about the future of your company and your ability to be an effective marketer for that company. It really hinges on growing your owned audience, which is your first party data, and then putting systems in place to underpin that so that so that you really understand not just who those people are, but what their interests are and what their behavior is. Kathleen, before we started recording, you mentioned cybersecurity as an important topic you'd like to discuss. Why is cybersecurity important to digital marketers? 
Oh, so I'm so passionate about this one. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, you know, I got an MBA in marketing and the word cybersecurity, I don't think ever came up in, in that entire MBA. And I'm pretty sure that it's, it either doesn't come up these days, or it's a very tiny, tiny piece of any marketer's education. If you're even getting a degree in marketing. Um, I was really first exposed to cybersecurity when I had my agency and I had, I think about five different cyber companies as clients. Um, and so I learned a lot about it at that point, but at the same time, funny enough, my agency's website got hacked and I came in one day and, and the website was gone and there was a picture of a young lady on, on the homepage. And thankfully I had put measures in place that, that allowed me to restore my website within five minutes or under, thank God. Um, because, you know, today your website really is your storefront. It's your business. Um, but that, that they always say, and later I went and I went on to work as the head of marketing for a couple of different cybersecurity companies after I sold my agency and every cyber security practitioner that I met really drilled home to me that number one, I don't think people really ever appreciate cyber until they themselves have been the victim of some sort of cyber crime. And, and that's definitely true. I mean, I later had my Apple ID stolen. And so it's been driven home to me. But as a marketer, I've come to really appreciate what a responsibility we have for cyber. And this is something that I think might raise some eyebrows of people listening, because again, we're not taught this. It's never really in anyone's job description when we're hired. Um, and it's not a word we're used to using unless we work in the cybersecurity industry. And so what I mean by this is that, you know, today as marketers, there's, I think, some, some Gartner research or Forrester research that shows that marketers these days have larger IT budgets than IT leaders within companies. So we control the vast majority of a company's IT spend uh, and much of that is is very public facing things like the website and and other tools that that are visible to the world. And anytime you're talking about IT, you're talking about cyber vul vulnerability. And so, in in the sense that we do own a lot of that budget, we also then, by definition, own the responsibility for ensuring that the IT tools that we are purchasing and that we are managing on a day to day basis are not exposing the company to vulnerability. We're also responsible for the website generally, and, and that is a major point of vulnerability that we need to ensure is secure. And we're also responsible for social media, which, you know, I would say the number one point of vulnerability for any company is its people. And social media, and I can get more into this in a minute, provides a, a malicious actor or a hacker or whatever you want to call them with generally everything they need to carry out a very successful attack on a company. And I can give some examples of that, but these are th all things that as marketers, we, we need to know about um, in order to really protect ourselves and, and build successful careers. Before you do provide examples, I'd love to know if you have like a list of resources that someone can leverage to start like on the right foot on learning about cybersecurity as it relates to them as a marketer. You know, there are so many out there and there, there are a lot of free ones. And I generally say to people that the best place to start is the department of Homeland security, because there is actually a division of Homeland security called CISA, C I S A 
which has to do with cybersecurity. And their website has so many great links to resources and to education. Um, and it's a great way to educate yourself. And I believe you can just go to CISA.gov. So C-I-S-A.gov. And you will find quite a bit of information there that, that will get you started. It will take you to other websites, but they've done the job of vetting for you. Perfect. Now, can we talk about specific examples where a company can be attacked by a malicious player? Sure. And I, I'm going to divide this into three categories that I think are specifically relevant to marketers because, you know, we don't, we're not going to have sole responsibility for cyber. Your IT leader or your outsourced IT provider is going to play a big part in this too. But there are three areas where I think marketers really can exercise a degree of control in helping to ensure the company is protected. The first I already mentioned is our IT spend and <clears throat> doing your homework, right? Um, making sure that the, the vendors you're purchasing IT from are vetted and legitimate. And in some cases, that's very easy. Like many of us use, you know, our spend goes to things like marketing automation platforms or, or CRM platforms. And those tend to be large, well-known companies uh, that have lots of information publicly available on their websites about how secure they are. But we also purchase other software and it could be apps or plugins or things and those might come from less well-known sources. And I do think it is incumbent upon us to do our own due diligence to make sure that those the makers of those tools are, are taking steps to ensure they are secure and that you're checking on that. Um, so that's number one. It's really doing your homework with your IT spend and then following up and having a vehicle through which to track whether any of those providers has had a breach so that you're aware of it when it happens and you can take the steps you need to take. That's number one. Number two is websites. So this is a huge one. As marketers, we generally are responsible for the company website and the very nature of how websites are built today is that they rely on third-party code. What I mean by that is this, when, when we first started building websites a very long time ago, uh, many of them were just hard-coded HTML sites. So we wrote the code and we put our website up. Now, thank God, <laughs> it is so much easier to build websites and we rely on tools like content management systems, such as WordPress or HubSpot or in e-commerce, Shopify, um, that make it so simple to stand up a website uh, without having a lot of technical skills. But those platforms are in, them, in and of themselves third-party code platforms. And so again, doing your due diligence on those is important and not using a platform that, that you haven't carefully vetted. Um, but then even once we build our sites with those platforms, we inevitably add other third-party elements. And this is where those apps and plugins really come to play or themes. Um, WordPress is a great example. There are thousands upon thousands of themes that people use to, to design their WordPress websites. And many of those, because WordPress is open source, come from places that, that may be suspect. In fact, I think it was about a year and a half ago, the Department of Homeland Security 
uh, that same group I mentioned, CISA, released an alert saying that one of the more popular WordPress themes sold through the Envato marketplace was in fact built by hackers for the express purpose of harvesting information. And Envato, if if anyone's listening, Envato Marketplace is a very widely used, widely trusted source for WordPress themes. And so you would think, oh, I'm going to Envato. This must be fine. But this was this was not fine. This was a malicious theme. Now, it's hard very often to know these things um, and, and to, to discover that on your own. Like this was research that was discovered by cybersecurity companies. And so in these cases, it's important to track these notifications. And CISA, the site that I mentioned, does have a way for you to subscribe to alerts that they send out for big breaches or big vulnerabilities. I would recommend subscribing to that so that you at least know if the thing that you're using has been compromised and then you can take steps to fix it. But I would also say with your website, this is why it's so important how you choose your hosting platform. Every website needs to be hosted somewhere. And um, I told the story earlier of when my agency website was hacked. At the time, my website was on WordPress and we were using WP Engine as the host, which is built for WordPress. And the reason, one of the many reasons we chose that hosting platform was that it had a feature where it took consistent backups of your website multiple times per day. And if anything should happen, which it did for me, they had a one-click reinstall. So you could go in, find the latest um, uncompromised backup and just hit a button and take it live again, which is exactly what we did. So I was able to restore my site in under five minutes. That would not necessarily have been possible with every host. Um, you know, and, and you also want to look at things like do they have phone support or do I need to submit a ticket? How long is it going to take me to get a response? You, most of us can't afford to have our websites down for three days. And if you're using a hosting platform that doesn't provide you with very fast response times or the ability to talk to a person, you might want to reconsider. And so those are kind of the considerations at the website level. The third area is social media. Um, I mentioned this earlier as well, that you know we own social, we post a lot. There, there is this whole category of cybersecurity vulnerability called social engineering. And this goes back to why I said people are our greatest vulnerability. If we can convince a person to take an action that makes the company vulnerable, that's the easiest way in for a hacker because most companies have good cyber defenses, but people have a way in. And so some examples on the social front are um, this has happened a couple times now to companies I've been involved with. I was actually working at a cybersecurity company last year when our CEO and head of sales went to work a conference and I, they sent me back a picture of themselves at the booth and I posted that picture to LinkedIn and I tagged them and I said, here's our CEO and our head of sales working in the booth at this conference in Georgia. And within an hour, somebody emailed, they, they must have gone onto LinkedIn looked at who worked for the company. They must've found the people who had joined it the most recently. So the newest people, they emailed one of those people and said, I, they pretended to be the CEO and said, I'm at a conference in Georgia. I need your help. Could you please go out and buy gift cards and send them to me um, so that I can use them for these prospective clients? That's social engineering. It was a brilliant attack if you think about it because the person looked at the LinkedIn post knew where the CEO was, knew his name, knew who he was with, and was able to figure out from LinkedIn who the newest employee was and 
communicate with that person through, if they couldn't do it through email, they could do it through a LinkedIn message. So, you know, I'm not saying stop posting these things, but I'm saying it's about awareness and understanding how as marketers, we create vulnerability so that when this happens and funny enough, this exact thing just happened again at my current company uh, in a slightly different way. But as soon as, you know, if you, if you're able to, uh, to spot those, those attacks, understand how they're happening, as soon as they happen, you can alert the rest of your team. You can educate your team on what to look out for. And you can also do it preemptively and say, look, our executives are traveling. You're never going to get a request for anybody to buy gift cards. So that's a quick overview. Um, I have so many more examples I can give you on the website front, which is probably the biggest one. And I can talk a little bit about how it manifests in e-commerce, but I'll stop and see if you have any questions. Well, I do have several comments. First, I have used Invato Elements for many WordPress themes that I've made for (laughs) clients. So it's kind of scary in a way to know that they had that compromise, but at the end of the day, as you mentioned, it's just doing your due diligence before you use any tool. That's really one thing that's important. And then the second thing to know is in regards to website hosting, I I have to agree with you when it comes to thinking about like, what are the perks? And also, how are they with customer support? Because if there is an issue where your site goes down and my site has gone down at least 17, if not 18 times from the five years that I've owned it owned it, excuse me. Each time it's gone down, my website provider, GoDaddy, has helped me get it back up in less than two minutes by simply opening up the support chat and saying, hey, my site's down. Can you help me? So that's definitely something that you want to consider. And it's, it's reassuring to note that although there are malicious players out there, there are simple solutions, just like employee onboarding and, and, having your new team members know here are potential scenarios that you might encounter because we work in B2B SaaS or because we work in a tech company where people will try and get the data of the team or the data of our customers. And here's the ways that you can prevent this from happening. I know there's tools like 1Password, for example, that help with that kind of area. And there's general practices for helping with phishing attempts and email All in all, I do suspect, Kathleen, and let me know if I'm incorrect here, the tactics that are being used today will become outdated next year, and then there'll be new tactics that malicious players use against us, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always describe um, malicious actors like water. You know, and when you Mm. think about geography and how canyons are formed, it's because water, when it's traveling in this world it's going to look for the path of least resistance and it easily adjusts course, right? The same thing with cybersecurity. You know, malicious actors are, 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 I'm going to call them lazy by nature. Like they're going to look for the easiest way in. And they're also not just lazy, but they're also fast moving and agile. And I know those sound like almost contradictions, but but they are looking for the biggest bang for their buck. And if you have a good defense, they're going to go elsewhere, you know, and that's just, that's a good overall cyber posture. That means training for your team. And by the way, as a marketer, you, you can play a role in advocating to your company for cybersecurity training. If your company is not already doing it with its team, with its staff, that's so important as part of the entire uh, approach to cyber. You've got to cover the human element as well as the technological element. 
Now, you mentioned e-commerce, and that is a topic that I love to talk about, and I could definitely talk about it for hours. So I would love <laughs> to know, when it comes to cybersecurity and e-commerce, what are the considerations that marketers should be keeping in mind? Yeah, so this is something that I'm really focused on right now, just because of what I do at Clean.io. Um, and and I always I, I don't usually call it cybersecurity because marketers very often hear that and they think, well, that's not my responsibility. And so I like to think of it as digital engagement security, where you know, hist- back in the brick and mortar days before the internet existed, um, our the way the way we built relationships with customers and prospects, the way we engendered trust, and the way we were able to close deals was through engagements or interactions with our buyers. And that was either somebody coming into your store or walking into your office or back in the days of door-to-door salesmen, you know, there was that. But it was this engagement that we had, these relationships and these interactions. Well, now that all takes place virtually through a website um, for, you know, a growing majority of businesses, especially after, you know, COVID. Um, And with e-commerce, it's it's entirely your business. Your whole business is your website. And so our ability to create a safe and secure environment where we can engage with buyers is critical. There's a lot of data that shows that people will not buy from sites where they don't feel like their personal personal information is secure. Um, But it's also about, you know, the responsibility you have as a business to create a really great user experience because people have a lot of choices these days. And if their user experience isn't great, they're not going to come back to your site. Um, And it's about protecting your revenue because if your, if your business is your website, that's, that's where all your revenue is coming from. And so so with e-commerce in particular, um, there's a lot of different elements to this. I mean, there's there's preventing fraud at checkout. Um, the thing that we're most focused on is third-party code on your site. Um, and I already mentioned things like apps and plugins, but there's this whole other category. This is so interesting to me, and I never knew about it until I came to this company. There's this whole other category of third-party code called client-side injections. And that is just a very fancy way of saying it's the code that the website visitor brings with them to your website. And we've all experienced this and we all do it as consumers and as users of the internet. If you're listening to this and you're at your computer, just look at your computer right now, pull up your internet browser and look at all of the extensions that you've installed in your browser. Like as I'm talking to you, Kenny, I'm looking at my Google browser that I have opened and, and I'm a marketer, right? There are certain plugins or, or sorry, extensions that many of us use things like, um, I use awesome screenshot to take screen videos and, and screen captures of websites I'm visiting. I use built with to understand what technology a website has been built with. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are so many of them, but for e-commerce, some of the extensions that are particularly impactful are coupon extensions like Honey and Capital One Shopping, which probably a lot of us use too. And the reason that these extensions are so significant to all businesses is that browser extensions, because they are installed by the user, have an elevated level of permissions to execute on the websites that that user visits. So, and it makes sense, right? If you think about how extensions work, um, built with being a great example, 
that allows you to see, was this website built on WordPress or on Shopify or on Magento or on HubSpot? The way it's able to do that is it's able to look at and scrape the code on the back end of the website. And the website is not giving built with permission to do that. Built with has permission because the way internet browsers work is that they allow anything that the user installs in the form of the extension to have a greater level of permissions. It doesn't need the permission of the website to operate. So it's an incredibly important category of third-party code for us as marketers to understand the extensions because we have less control over them. And some extensions are very benign and you don't really have to worry. Like, I don't care if somebody uses built with and knows what my website is, is made with. If I'm an e-commerce business, I do care if somebody has Honey or Capital One Shopping because that is an example of an extension that has a direct impact on the user experience, the revenue that I'm bringing in and on my brand. Um, and so uh, until recently, there hasn't, haven't been a lot of good ways to control that. Like these extensions pop up and if you've ever used them, they, they seem so great as a, as a shopper. You go to a website, you put some things in a shopping cart and the extensions pop up in your browser window. And so that's the first kind of red flag, I think, for an e-commerce business is that these are pop-ups, right? These are things that are somewhat interruptive to the user experience, but in many cases welcomed by the user. And then if the user says, agrees to test coupons, so like Honey might pop up and say, I have 10 coupons for this store. Would you like me to try them? If I hit the button and say, yes, what Honey in this example is going to do is it's going to start to auto inject those coupon codes into the promo code field at checkout on, on my e-commerce website until it finds a, co a code that works. If it doesn't find one that works, it's just going to say, congratulations, you already have the best deal. If it finds one that works, that shopper is going to get a discount. Um, that on the surface may not seem problematic. Like a lot of e-commerce merchants hear that and think, well, that's great. That's going to help me close a deal or, you know, affect a sale with somebody who might not otherwise have purchased. Well, the reality is the vast majority of the people that are getting to check out and putting things in their cart have already decided they're going to buy these things at the price that they were advertised for. So they don't need the discount in order to convert. And in fact, we actually have a lot of A-B test data to back this up, um, that, that discount plugins or extensions do not help conversion rates. In fact, if anything, they hurt them. Um, and so what's happening is the browser extensions coming in at that very, very last mile of the buyer's journey. And all it's serving to do is lower your average order value. And the consequence of that is not just that you make less money off of your customers. You also then can't rely on your attribution data because the thing that the coupon extensions do is they claim last click um, attribution for the sale. That's a big and problem. And so it's a huge problem. If somebody comes through your Facebook ads and gets to your website and puts things in checkout, and then all of a sudden at the very last minute, Honey claims credit for that sale, you're not going to know that it's really your Facebook ad that brought that person in. And no, oh, by the way, Honey's claiming credit whether they found a valid coupon or not, which is a huge problem. Wow. So, well, yeah. one one thing to add, which is related to this, I have 27 Google Chrome extensions. Yes. And I exactly. probably only use three of them on a daily basis, which is surprising. 
I, I know for a fact we can dive in deeper when it comes to the world of e-commerce, but Kathleen, we might need to do a part two because I do have to ask two more questions so that we're still within the time limit of this podcast. So my next question, and it's more on a holistic slash high level overview of your career. What soft and hard skills have you leveraged throughout your entire career? Oof. Well, I'll focus on the few that I think have made the biggest differences for me. And I think um, the number one soft skill and the number one skill overall is just an insatiable curiosity and desire to understand how things work and to solve problems. That is something that you can't teach somebody. They either have it or they don't. And if you are in marketing and really many different career fields, if you don't have this, you are not really going to be able to go all the way because we'll just use marketing for an example. Like it changes so often. The technology is constantly changing. There are always like platform changes, you know, Facebook changes its algorithm or Google changes its algorithm. There are new technologies cropping up all the time. It's being, having the, the desire first and foremost to stay on top of all of that and to be a lifelong student is vital. And then, you know, the other half of that is when confronted with something you don't understand, having the drive to figure it out. I always call this a high figure it out factor is so, so important. And so above everything else, I think those are the things that I would say have made me successful. And then after that, I think, um, and I don't know whether you consider this a hard or a soft skill, but writing is so important. It's part of almost everything we do as marketers, whether we're writing ad copy, email copy, website copy, you know, reports to a board of directors, um, internal communications, it's at the heart of everything. And you really have to be able to write and be persuasive in your writing. Um, those are really the top two. Beyond that, I think everything else is pretty easy to learn. I'm glad you mentioned writing. And I know for a fact that my mentors listening or going to listen to this episode and it's thanks to him. I took an advanced grammar course. It was an elective. I didn't need to take it right before graduating college. And I had no idea why he kept pushing me. Hey, you need to do this. You need to do this. If you're going to get into marketing, Kenny, please take advanced grammar. And I, I know now in hindsight why he told me to do that, because in my field of both community management, advertising and social media engagement, you have to know how to write property and also how to create buying triggers and triggers for action in general through copy, not just with animation, video and graphics. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because it is a core skill that I think any marketer, heck, any professional needs to know how to write effectively, whether that's to get more customers as a marketer or to communicate project management tasks, processes, et cetera, internally with any team you're working with. Would you, would you agree uh, with that? It, it, Absolutely. It is, it is so fundamental and so critical and so shockingly hard to find people who are really good writers. Um, I can't underscore that enough. If anyone wants a good book, and this is an easy read, I've read this book at least five times now. That's how good it is. Uh, I believe it's called On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft by Stephen King. It's my favorite book from Stephen King, aside from all of his amazing stories because he catalogs the journey of how he wrote each of his books, what was going on in his life, and what was he learning as a writer, as an author, 
through each of these books that he was working on. So I'll put that in the show notes for anyone who's interested in basically becoming a better writer. Now, you are the second person who's mentioned that book to me, by the way. So I, I, I think you're right. There's something there. Oh, no, for sure. He's, he's a great storyteller in general, but the way he tells the story of his career, there's a reason why it's my favorite book out of maybe even any of the books I've read that are nonfiction, which is saying Mm -hmm. something. So Kathleen, my last question for you, which is the question I ask all of my guests at the end of this show is if you had a time machine. And you can go back 10 years into the past, knowing everything you know right now, how would you accelerate the speed of your career? Oh, that is such a great question. And and it's an interesting time period because that would be 2011. And in 2011, I was halfway through my journey as an agency owner. Um, and I wound up selling my agency in 2017. And I think that boy, what would I do differently? Um, I feel that I probably would have joined more communities of my peers. That's become easier today with technology. I'm a member of a lot of Slack groups, uh, a lot of other communities where, you know, other heads of marketing are, um, and it's given me tremendous exposure to people in, different environments than me and at different stages in their career, people who've been heads of marketing for very large companies, for companies that have, you know, grown and become unicorns and understanding those journeys has been unbelievably enlightening. Um, Back in 2011, there were definitely communities, uh, but I think, you know, there were LinkedIn groups, but I'm thinking more, I had a number of opportunities to join um, paid communities and there were more paid communities at the time now there's more free ones. And I just never, I don't think appreciated the value in paying for community membership. I was being cheap, honestly. And looking back now, I, having done it, I understand the amazing impact that that can have on your ability to accelerate your learning and to build a powerful network that will position you for greater opportunity. And so I would say if I had to go back, I would definitely spend the money and join some of these communities. Thank you for that. And thank you for all of the wisdom you've actually shared throughout this entire episode. If anyone wanted to find you online, where can they say hi? So I am most active on LinkedIn and I connect with everybody. So <laughs> head there, send me a connection request, send me a DM. I'm, I always respond unless you're trying to sell me something, in which case I probably won't respond unless it's something I really want to buy. But you can certainly connect with me there. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at work mommy work. This has been another episode of the people of digital marketing with our guest, Kathleen Booth for the listener. Who's listening for the first time. I feel like the theme of this episode was just being more tech savvy and understanding not only cybersecurity, but your role as a marketer needs to be not only creative, but also technical. If you haven't done so check out episode 62 It's with Dan McGaw of McGaw.io. He also talks about MarTech, your tech stack, how to do diligence on tools. So I think both of these episodes will tie in really nicely together. And again, Kathleen, thank you for your time. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode. And as always, I hope everyone has a great week. Bye. Hey, thanks again for listening to this podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to submit a rating and leave a review on your podcasting app. Reviews like this help to grow this podcast and get it to more people like yourself, people who want to grow in their marketing careers. If you want to say hello, you can find me on any social media platform by simply searching Kenny Soto. I look forward to hearing from you soon. And as always, let's keep growing together.